But you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Certainly coming to the end soon. At least four more weeks. 32 is a pretty big chapter. 33 is pretty large, but 34 is pretty short. So we'll probably do combine them, but uh, probably four more weeks, maybe five in Deuteronomy, and then we continue on. We go to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuels, Kings, then we'll decide where we go from there. <laughs> maybe we'll do Ezra and Nehemiah, I don't know, but uh, uh, at this point, we know where we're going for the next little while. It's probably going to take us many years, uh, but uh, Deuteronomy certainly is the foundation for that, and so we're going to look at ver- uh, chapter 30 this evening. Uh, I will read the entire chapter beginning at verse 1. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. The Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will will gather you and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possess and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul that you may live. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. But the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. For the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and are drawn away, and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them a... Man, Well, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab before they enter into the promised land. Remember, 400 years prior, God made that promise to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land 
Uh, his descendants would have the land that God showed uh, to Abraham. Uh, God made that promise to him, and he fills that temporally with the ethnic people of Israel, with the ethnic Jews. As he brings them up out of the land of Egypt, uh, that first generation, they are fearful of the big Anakim that are there, the big giants. So God caused them to wander in the wilderness. Now that second generation is about to enter into that land. And so God enters into that covenant, which he did with the first generation. And now he does more in more detail with the second generation, which would hopefully be for subsequent generations as well, namely the book of Deuteronomy. It is that foundation for the historical books. It's the foundation uh, for all the good, all the blessing that Israel receives, and all the bad and cursing that Israel receives in their history. Now, the book itself is very much structured like a covenant. We see the preamble, the parties of the covenant, God and Israel. We see the historical prologue, the history between the parties. We see the stipulations, that is, what each party must do. And then we also see the sanctions, which we, uh, is where we are today. Chapters 27 through 30 are the sanctions, the blessings and the curses. That is, if Israel did what was right, they would receive blessing. If Israel did what was wrong, they would receive cursing. Remember, this is a works covenant about life in the land. It's a temporal covenant about life in the land. Salvation is never held out, but certainly a good life in the land is held out for the people if they do what Yahweh says. And so certainly the emphasis is all about loyalty to him. And chapters 29 and 30 is kind of Deuteronomy in miniature. It really is covenant renewal. 29 deals with the curses more so. Chapter 30 does deal with the, uh, the blessings more so. Driving to the point where he says, choose this day. Doesn't quite say it like that, but that's exactly what he's saying. I set before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life to do what is right before the Lord God most high. Now, the clear problem is choosing death and evil. Death for disobedience. Death for not doing what the law says. Cursing for not doing what Yahweh has commanded. Remember, Yahweh is the name for uh, the Lord God most high, for God himself, his covenant name, I am who I am. He would keep his covenant. And Yahweh has spoken and saved them and spoken to them in how they ought to live. And so for old covenant Israel, by violating God's law, that's brought death and destruction. And we know Israel's history, they choose death. They choose and engage in disobedience. They choose wickedness, but it's all part of the plan of God. Because there certainly is a problem within the problem as we read Deuteronomy. Who can really obey? Who can really do what all these laws say? Who can really keep all these stipulations? There's also the problem of uncircumcised hearts. There's the problem of Israel being a stiff-necked people, which God has said throughout this book many times who can really obey and who can really then be circumcised well we see a prophecy of that here in deuteronomy chapter 30 we've seen a lot of doom and gloom in 28 and 29 but here there is some hope uh we see this prophecy this promise that god would return the people god would be the one who circumcises their hearts so in deuteronomy 30 Moses prophesies about the blessings of returning to God, which is something only God can do. This was the promise that the remnant, those who are truly believers, those who are truly in, uh, in Christ provisionally before Christ came, 
they clung to this very promise. As they entered into the land, as they saw the atrocities that were occurring, as they were carried off into exile, this would have been a promise that they clung to. God would bring them back. God would make them return. God would fulfill his blessings to Abraham spiritually. And so I do think there is prophecy going on here. Certainly there is there the, the tension of what it means for Israel at Moab, but there is this prophecy of hope, this prophecy of blessing uh, in light of Israel choosing this day who they would serve. And so we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, a promise of return, verses 1 through 10. And secondly, a clear choice, verses 11 through 20. So a promise of return, verses 1 through 10. And secondly, a clear choice, verses 11 through 20. So let's first look at a promise of return in verses 1 through 10. And notice the God who brings the return in verses 1 through 6. So in verse 1. That, that word when, now it shall come to pass when, is very important. It's a temporal conjunction. I'm going to do some grammar for us today because there's an important conjunction word uh, that we have to talk about. And that word can have differing meanings. And that plays an important role when we get to verse 10. But for now, that word is used temporally. Now it shall come to pass when all these things happen. When all these things occur. Now, last time in 29, uh, Moses was driving home the point that each person had a role to play, that if each person did not do what Yahweh said, they would bring certainly the curses upon themselves, but they would ruin it for everybody else. How to drive the point home that you all need to follow the covenant, because if you don't, you're going to get the brunt of it and you're going to ruin it for everybody else. And so the, the, so the, the cursing aspect was emphasized in 29, and certainly we saw the reality and threat of captivity then as well. But it was, humanly speaking, contingent. That is, Israel, if they did what was right, they would receive the blessing. If they did what was wrong, they would then receive the curse. Now, we know God brings about his promises. Hindsight's twenty twenty. we see, and know what happened to the history of Israel uh, and the history of Israel. But there is this prophecy in 30 verse 1, when this happens, when all these things come upon you. The blessing and the curse. The sanctions will have happened. The sanctions will have occurred. The exile is coming. And God eventually vomits the people out of the land for their wickedness. Now, do you remember when? 722? Good. What was the other one? 586. Thank you. That's three weeks in a row. Thank you, Oleg. Somebody got it after three weeks in a row. Awesome. 722 BC and 586 BC. Those are important dates. Babylon takes the northern, oh, sorry, Assyria takes the northern kingdom and Babylon takes the southern kingdom in 586. And so that is in view here. When all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you. So that is in view. And he says, and you call, and when you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. There is this promise of restoration. There is this encouragement for the remnant. There is this blessing that Yahweh promises here. Yahweh is a God of compassion. Yahweh is a God of life. And Yahweh here is prophesying in old covenant language about new covenant realities. That's important to understand. In the Old Testament, 
they prophesied using old covenant language about new covenant realities because they couldn't say it's going to be the church. There's going to be this thing called baptism and you're going to do something called the Lord's Supper. They can't quite say that just yet. It's pointing ahead. It's looking ahead uh, to Christ to come as the children's catechism says. How do the Old Testament saints believe Christ to come? It's the same salvation in the Old and the New Testament looking to Christ to come. And we have seen Christ has come and we believe upon him. So there's this encouragement when this happens and when you call all these things to mind where the Lord your God drives you. And when, verse 2, you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. The emphasis is going to be here on God who brings that return for them. And even though there is going to be a physical return in, for I guess the Cyrus's, or not Cyrus, yeah, Cyrus's decree in 538 BC is when the people can then go back to the land. Uh, I can't remember, I should remember the specific um, the returns, but I could ask the question, where is it talk about the return? In what book? Ezra. What book? Daniel. Ezra and Nehemiah. That's a trick question. It's one book in the Hebrew. Ezra and Nehemiah. It's not Ezra and Nehemiah. It's Ezra, Nehemiah. That's right, Ezra. Uh, there's the return there. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Yes, there is that return, and certainly that is in view. But even when that happens, something's still missing. There's no king. Something's quite not right, is, the, is it? When they return, they're still waiting for something. And so while that is in view, that can be in view here, there's something greater and a greater restoration that they need, a greater restoration that they are waiting for. And so there's a future promise with present implications. God is a God who delights to bless, but how he's going to bless is going to be, maybe is going to be what the work that he brings. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and all your soul. All your heart and all your soul is going to be mentioned uh, in verses 1 through 10 three times. It's already been mentioned in the book already. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. That's the Shema, right? Where's the Shema in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 6, very good. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the key theme, the key creed of the Old Testament. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. Well, how does one love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind? God has already said you're stiff-necked. You try and circumcise your hearts in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Well, the language is shifting a little bit here in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6. It's what Yahweh does. The Lord your God, he will bring you back. He will bring you back from captivity. He will have compassion on you. He will gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Exile and return. He will bring you back. He goes on to say in verse 5, Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it. Again, old, old covenant language with speaking about new covenant realities. You see, the Abrahamic covenant, when is it fulfilled? When is it fulfilled? Or in whom is it fulfilled? 
Christ looking ahead. In him, in Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is found in Galatians 3, where Paul says the gospel was preached beforehand. This is found in Acts chapter 3, where it talks about the promise. Uh, again, the promise was preached beforehand. But in Galatians 3, especially, Abraham or uh, Christ is called the seed. So how is it that the seed comes? How is it that the families of the earth are blessed? It is through Christ. Yes, God fulfills his promise to physical, the physical seed, ethnic Israel, by bringing them into the land, but they fail miserably. And it is through an Israelite, namely Christ, that God fulfills that promise to Abraham. And then in him, God spreads his glory to the ends of the earth. Abraham, uh, you know, that's why we can say we are sons and daughters of Abraham. Galatians 3, Acts 3, Romans 3 and 4 highlight these things in great and important detail. But you can read those on your own. So he's using that language. He's saying God had made this promise. God had made this covenant with Abraham. And God is going to bring it about. He's going to bring you back to the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it. Now, again, they do receive that in the return, but we're looking for a greater land, right? We're looking for an everlasting land. We're looking for a promised land. We're looking for a land that we can never be vomited out of. Dear brethren, that's heaven. That's what we long for. The old, old covenant promised land is a type of Emmanuel's land. It's a type of the new heavens and new earth. It's a type of the blessings that we that await us in Christ. That's what we long for. See, typology is important. The Old Testament types are, are uh, examples are pointing to the original. They are pointing to what we long for. They are pointing to something that awaits us. And so certainly verse five in, indicates that very thing. This whole section indicates that very thing I'll, I'll quote New Testament text as we go through. Uh, but, uh, but verse 5, he will prosper you. He will put, multiply you more than your fathers. It's going to be greater. It's going to be more glorious. It's going to be better than this one that is old. And notice as well in verse 6, God changes hearts. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. How can someone love the Lord their God? By God changing their heart. That has to happen first. And the implication certainly is there that we cannot circumcise our own hearts. And the old covenant, God says them, you circumcise your own hearts. Remember, the old covenant just weighs down. Remember, the old covenant is mainly just about life in the land. It was never meant to be about salvation. And certainly Yahweh prophesies this in Deuteronomy 4 as well. But the essence of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel, Ezekiel 6 is that the law is then internalized. No more shall you have to say, know me, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Or Ezekiel 30, 36, remove a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh that they then might keep my commandments. It is an internal work. The new covenant is a spiritual work. Verse 6 is different than the old. 
And they're looking for something that is greater than the old. And Jeremiah 31 says that it's not going to be. The new covenant is not going to be like the old, which they broke. The new covenant is far greater. There's forgiveness. There's mercy. And the law has been written on their heart in that new covenant way. And we seek to, as the new covenant saints, honor God because he first loved us and changed our hearts. We'll get to that more in just a second. But in any case, verse 6 highlights that it's looking forward to that very idea uh, that the Lord your God, he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And then in verses 7 through 10, we see more blessings and curses as well. Notice we see some curses. Also, the Lord your God will put all those curses on your enemies and those who hate you, those who persecuted you. Remember the Abrahamic promise, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. An important question to ask ourselves is, does Christ have enemies? Of course he does. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish along the way. He's talking about those kings and those nations that are raging and plotting vain things. Now, what's kind of glorious in Psalm 2 is those nations that are raging and plot vain things. He's holding out mercy. Hey, kiss the son, believe upon him, lest he be angry. And if you don't, if you think that's old covenant language, Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8, you are of your father, the devil. He understands that very clearly. He recognizes that very clearly. He says, you are of your father, the devil. He talks about the wheat and the tares. He talks about, though, if you're not with me, you're against me. Revelation 19, he is a rider in white who will make his uh, rider in white coming to make judgment. First Corinthians 15, quote Psalm 110. He is making his enemies his footstool. And one of the blessings of reigning with God is that if one is persecuted, if one is pressed down, if one is crushed, that's only temporary. Eventually you'll reign over your persecutors. Now we pray that our persecutors are saved, right? That's a good thing to pray for. We don't retaliate against them. But if they do not believe, they shall be justly and rightly punished under our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is a mighty king, who is a mighty warrior. He's not some namby-pamby Nancy boy that all those pictures seem to portray him as. He is mighty and strong. And these nations that God does use, that's another hard thing for our modern delicate sensitivities. He uses Assyria to bring about judgment upon Israel. He uses Babylon to bring about judgment upon Israel. He uses Cyrus and Persia to bring judgment upon Babylon. But the point is, even those wicked kings that God uses to bring judgment, they shall still be responsible before God most high. God is the just judge. God is the just ruler of this world, and those nations shall be culpable. And that's what verse 7 is very clearly highlighting for us there but back to blessing verses 8 through 10 and you will again obey the voice of the lord and do all his commandments again this internalizing aspect when it comes to the new covenant which i command you today 
The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and the produce of your land. These are the blessings. There's a threefold blessing in 28, um, uh, uh, 2811. The Lord will grant all these things. Well, yes, this is going to be fulfilled in that time. This threefold blessing of good things that God gives. There's going to be a blessing for the people will be obedient. The people will also receive blessing and the Lord will rejoice. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. When we talk about all the doom and gloom and all the curses, again, to drive the point home about what would happen to Israel if they didn't do what Yahweh had said. He says in verse 63 of 28, and it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. You shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. This is a reversal of that. Under the new covenant era, God is extending and demonstrating his mercy. He shall rejoice. He shall uh, rejoice as he rejoiced over your fathers. There's going to be blessing. There's going to be goodness. God will delight in his people. And verse 10, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God. When you obey, not if. This is where we come back to that particle. It's key. It's just a little little word there. It can be conditional if. Certainly a lot of places that does have that. It can also be temporal. When. I think that's probably more in view here than if. And some other commentators highlight that as well, especially the way the syntax seems to operate here. It can also be reason for. Why does he delight over them? Because they're obeying. Why is it they're obeying? Because God redeemed them. God will delight over his people because of obedience, and he'll delight over his people because of one primarily who obeys. And in him, we obey. But I don't think the conditional is right there. I think it needs to be the temporal. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God, or because you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments, his statutes, which are written in this book of the law. And when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. That goes with verse six. God is the one who brings it about. And God will rejoice over the work that he does in his new covenant people. It's not based on their righteousness. Deuteronomy chapter nine. It's not based on their goodness. It's based on God's compassion towards them and God's power that he uh, that he shows and he will do this as he brings their return now the application I do think for return very much refers to God's salvation that he brings I think there are a couple New Testament passages that allude at least to this uh, uh, this passage one especially when it comes to the new covenant I think is uh, alludes to Deuteronomy 30 in Mark 13. This is Mark's Olivet Discourse. That was probably your favorite part of Mark's gospel because it's the Olivet Discourse and it's so controversial. Uh, but um, I enjoyed going through that. But I, what, I, what I believe is going on there is that it's referring to the destruction of the Old, old Covenant. It's, uh, it's, it's predicated, what leads to this Olivet Discourse Jesus says, see that temple, I'm going to destroy it. And all the disciples are like, what? 
we, we thought you were going to, you know, look at it. It's wonderful. But Jesus comes and says, I'm going to destroy that. And they ask questions. When will that be? How will that occur? I believe all of it is a two event uh, uh, discourse. It's referring to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, doing away with the Old Testament people, uh, making way for the new. But it's also a type of final judgment as well. And I think the key to that is in 1458, where Jesus is on trial and the false witnesses say, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. He's doing away with the old one. He's bringing in a new one. And the new temple that he's bringing in is his body. I tried to highlight, too, the abomination of desolation. Yes, can refer to when the Roman armies surround Jerusalem uh, leading up to AD 70. But I also think it's rooted in Deuteronomy. The abomination, Deuteronomy, and especially Leviticus and the blessings and the curses. The abomination that leads to desolation. The wickedness that leads to destruction. And the old covenant people were engaging in wickedness. The old covenant people were selling, uh, were engaging in commerce in the temple. And here comes Jesus turning the table saying, you cannot do that. They don't like that. They come and challenge him. They're rejecting the one who is the Lord of glory. And so Jesus then in all of that explains why. Because I'm doing away with the old. I'm rejecting them and I'm bringing in the new. And so in verses 24 through 27, very judgment-type language. I mean, the most abominable thing that happens is them killing the Lord of glory, right? I mean, when Jesus is at the cross, I mean, it's the middle of the day and it darkens. Why? Judgment. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see uh, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Not descending out of, coming in the clouds. And when I think it refers to coming in the clouds, I think it refers to his ascension. They will see him sitting at the right hand with power, which is what Jesus says to those uh, to the Sanhedrin in Mark 14. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It's Daniel chapter 7. It's the Son of Man returning to the Ancient of Days. I think Acts 1 is the earthly picture of Christ's ascension. I think Deuteronomy, or Daniel 7 is the heavenly picture of Christ's ascension. And as he's ascended, he's been vindicated. He shows who he is, and he is the one who is reigning, and he is the one who is ruling. He is the one who is and has great power. And that signifies his dying, signifies the old is done away with, the new has come, and the Son of Man is reigning. And notice what that Son of Man will do, verse 27. He will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth, to the farthest part of heaven. That alludes to Deuteronomy 30. The gathering comes in the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth, which we see in the book of Acts. As the gospel extends to the ends of the earth, Christ has extended his glory to the ends of the earth. And he has gathered his elect. He has circumcised hearts. He has changed them that in him there is new life. Zechariah 2 prophesies this as well. And it's by his dying 
and rising that he brings about this gathering by his power. That's what I think is going on in Mark 13. It clearly is alluding to Deuteronomy 30. Um, so that's one area. And also another area is Romans 2, which alludes to the circumcision of the changed heart. Uh, it alludes to conceptually. The words are not quite identical. One thing that's very interesting, though, is in the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 30, in the Hebrew, it's the word for circumcised, but in the, in the Greek translation, it's cleanse. It's a cleansing one's heart. I don't know if they're foreshadowing the fact that, you know, bapt, uh, 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 baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. But in any case, that asymmetrical connection, but that's, that's just an aside. But uh, uh, Romans chapter 2. What is circumcision? Colossians chapter 2. Is it one that is made in the flesh or made in the heart? Is it one that is inward or is it one that is outward? And Paul very clearly is saying that it's best to be a Jew inwardly. That is one by the work of God inwardly. A changing heart, what we call regeneration, the work of the spirit in the hearts and lives to give new hearts. You see this in John 3. You must be born again. You see this in Ephesians 2. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins have been made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says in Romans 2, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision uh, that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Only God can bring about the change in one's heart. God has chosen a great multitude before the foundation of the world and those whom he predestines. He calls. He effectually calls. He regenerates. He works in them. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies in Romans 8. But it starts... Uh, in time and space, but the work of God to circumcise hearts. Inward, changed heart is more important than outward. So that's the promise of return. Let's then look secondly at a clear choice in verses 11 through 20. Notice the clear command in verses 11 through 13. This is in connection with 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are, are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The future is too hard for us. The future is a mystery. It's too high and lofty. But the law that's been revealed, that's there for us. And that's clear. That is not hard for us. Reading it, apprehending it, judging and discerning it, not hard. Keeping it is the hard part. But when you see what he says, this command which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. Remember, this is covenant renewal for the Moabite generation, and it will be for the subsequent generations as well. It's not a hard thing. It's very clear. God has laid it out. Here's what you must do. Here's what happens if you don't do it. Here's what happens if you do do it. Like, Nobody's going, can I, can I get a mulligan here? Because I have no idea that, you know, that I didn't know what was going that Everything is laid out. They got it all laid out there for them. It is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven 
that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, uh, that we may hear it and do it. It's not some esoteric thing that one has to ascend into heaven, uh, heaven to get it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. But the word is very near you. Wright says it is not complicated and distracted by obscure philosophies, complex rules, or esoteric religious rituals accessible only to the privileged few. It's clear. It's accessible. Even as well in chapter 29, verse 10, we saw everyone was involved from the least to the greatest, from the little one to the oldest. They all knew what they had to do. It was all very clear what they had to engage in what they had to learn, what they had to memorize, what they had to do as the old covenant people. But the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. They must internalize it. It's close. They must memorize it. They must you know, make it like frontlets before their eyes so that they never forget it. Walking around with those like flashcards. What are those in the past? I've seen those uh, little clips with flashcards that hang over the glasses, right? And we look like weirdos walking around. That's probably not a bad idea if you want to memorize the Bible, walking around like that. But uh, that's what's essentially what he's saying with those frontlets. Memorize them. Don't forget them. Because what was one of the problems in Israel? Forgetfulness. Forgetting what Yahweh had done. Forgetting what Yahweh had said. Growing fat in the land and forgetting what he had stipulated and his kindness and bring them up out of the land of Egypt. So it is a near word. Now, if I may make a new covenant application here, I think there is, again, a conceptual connection with 1 John 5, 3. How does one know that they're a child of God? By keeping his commandments. Not as a way of salvation, but in our Christian life, in our sanctification that we seek to honor God with sin, but there's mercy and forgiveness, but it's our sanctification. We believe in justification and we believe in sanctification. And when it comes to the commandments of God, John says in 1 John 5, they're not burdensome. And the reason they're not burdensome is because Christ is the perfect law keeper and we are in him. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Uh, take my yoke upon you. And I have, uh, uh, I can't remember, but my yoke is easy and my burden is light, is what he says. And the reason that is, is because he fulfills it. And that's in contrast with the Pharisees who just burden people. The law without Christ is just a heavy, large burden, weighing, weighing, weighing down. But in Christ, we are lifted from it. We are forgiven for, uh, uh, from our sins by violating the law. The law itself is not bad, but our violations of it is what is sinful. And so by God's grace, we ought to bear fruit. We have been changed. We have been redeemed in him. Should we not seek to honor him by the power of the spirit and because we are in Christ? Now, let's be honest. The Ten Commandments are pretty clear right? They're also very clear. That's our Christian life. You want to know what God's will for your life is? That's it. The Ten Commandments. <laughs> I mean, I know there's other ways in which he unpacks that, or Paul, the writers unpack that, Paul unpacks that, but what that means, but 
I mean, the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, what's the end of the whole matter? Fear God and keep his commandments. I mean, we add everything to it. We make things burdensome. Yet, God's commandments are very clear. Hard to do, but simple when it comes to what he commands us to do. But it is a near word for them. The commandment is clear for them, but they may do it. And the choice, I think, is very clear. Life or death. I mean, you'd think life would be the one they choose. And Moses will exhort them to that. Uh, But verse 15. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. We're coming really to the end of kind of the main body. 31 through 34 will be the succession plan. Who's next? Moses won't enter in. So we're really driving to the climax uh, in a lot of ways here. I have set before you today life and good death and evil. And then I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Blessings for covenant obedience for the old covenant people, life and goodness for keeping the uh, the commandments, death and evil for violating it. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. And he calls heaven and earth as a witness. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you. Covenant lawsuit. The covenant lawsuits will come back again as well, that the heaven and earth act as a witness before them. I have set before you today life and death, blessing and curse. Here's my exhortation. Life. Choose life. Keep his commandments. It's not just a simple affirmation, but it must be a way of life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life in the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Cling to God. Worship God. Don't turn away from God. That is a very clear exhortation. That ought to be the clear exhortation. What's the problem in Israel? They choose death. They choose sin. They choose curse. And they choose to go their own way rather than God's way. And they bring destruction upon them. Now, thankfully, brethren, there is a clear application when it comes to the gospel. The gospel itself is clear, isn't it? And this is where Romans 10 comes in. You turn with me to Romans 10. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. Quotes, yes, he quotes. um, But he's using it for his purposes. Paul can do that. You and I cannot. Um, But it's in in respect to Israel needing the gospel. It's comparing and contrasting a righteousness by works and a righteousness by faith. The law-gospel distinction is so very vital and important. 
law or self-righteousness versus Christ's righteousness. Righteousness by the law versus righteousness by faith. The old covenant was righteousness by the law. Leviticus 18.5 says, the man who does them shall live by them. The problem is the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 2. And Galatians unpacks that as well. But in Romans 10, he wants Israel to be saved, but it must be by faith and not by descent. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, seek their own. and not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's a purpose for the law. And there is a purpose for the gospel. The law does not save, but it weighs down. But the gospel is what saves. And what he's highlighting here is the fact that obedience is still important. But the question is, where does it come from? Where does obedience come from? Or from whom does it come from? Christ. That's the emphasis in Romans. By one man, sin entered the world. By one man, righteousness. You see, it's not just that Christ died for our sins, but Christ lived a perfect life for us. That then his righteousness might be imputed to us, Romans 4, that his righteousness might be transferred to us, that we might have a righteousness that is not our own. Philippians 3 talks about that, a righteousness not our own, that comes from God uh, through faith. Not by the work by works. It's what we call an alien righteousness. And we need him to cover us in that. We need to be clothed by him. And the way in which we receive that is by faith. A righteousness that comes through faith. Believing on Christ, living, dying, and rising again, believing on his perfection, but in him we are declared not guilty. If we're not in Christ, we're guilty. If we're in Christ, we're not guilty. Because he is that perfect sacrifice for his people. So the words of Deuteronomy come up in verses 5 through 8. And I do think the incarnation, resurrection, proclamation, all these things are there. One thing that Paul does is he subtracts the to-dos from Deuteronomy. Paul can do that. Remember that. <laughs> He's interpreting it for us. He's emphasizing it for us. And he says uh, in verse 5, the law. The man who does them shall live by them. That is Leviticus 18.5. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. We don't have to go to heaven. Christ came down. Christ became incarnate. Christ is and was with us. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Christ is not in in the realm of the, or he's not in death anymore, but he's been resurrected. These things are clear. He's been incarnate. He's been resurrected. It is very clear. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth, that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what Seyfried highlights here is that Israel wasn't look supposed to be uh, look, uh, to, supposed to look beyond the law to obtain or uh, look beyond what was revealed unto them. And the same thing is true here. We don't look beyond the Son who is our salvation. He is our righteousness. 
He is our life, and we receive him through faith. Another thing, too, that Seyfried points out is the law is a gift. The law is not bad. Even though it's an old covenant, conditional covenant with Israel, it's not a bad thing. And even more so, Christ is a greater gift because he actually fulfills the law. And we receive it by faith. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he goes on to talk about how that gospel is spread. It is spread through preaching. But Christ is the one who brings fulfillment to all the law and the prophets, doing what Adam could not do, doing what Abraham could not do doing what Israel could not do, doing what David and all the kings could not do. He is our perfection. And that's why the new covenant is built upon better promises, because we have a mediator of a better covenant. And if we believe on him, there is life. Choose this day, life or death. And what we mean by that is believe on Christ and you shall be saved. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful that the gospel is preached in the Old Testament. Thank you that it is provisional. Thank you that the new is in the old concealed. And thank you the old is in the new revealed. Thank you for the relationship between the two testaments and between the old and the new covenants. Oh God, these are rich things for us to comprehend and ponder and consider. And thank you, oh God, for many men who have wrestled with these ideas before and many men who draw these things out. And thank you, O oh God, that even in your word, Paul interprets these, uh, this passage for us. So help us, O oh God, by your grace to see that there is mercy and forgiveness in you, that you, you are the one who changes hearts. You are the one who brings uh, restoration. You are the one who brings salvation. You are the one uh, who, who uh, uh, works in us and gives us new hearts that we might obey you. You are the one who predestined. You're the one who calls. You're the one who justifies. You're the one who sanctifies. You're the one who preserves. And you're the one who shall glorify your people. Thank you for all these doctrines that are blessed and uh, that we cherish and hold dear. And thank you, O oh God, that even in the old, even with all the promises of doom and gloom and the threats of cursing, O oh God, that you promise to show forth your blessing to change hearts. And so may this give us comfort this day. May this give us encouragement this day. Thank you that your word is clear. Thank you that the gospel is clear. Thank you, O oh God, that salvation is clear. And thank you that how we ought to live is clear as well. Please forgive us for rejecting these things and not honoring you as we ought. And please help us, O oh God, not to be forgetful of your goodness towards us. So may this give us encouragement as we go about our various tasks and circumstances. Give us aid each and every day by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.